Good morning, RCC. I want to welcome everyone watching online as well as here in-house for week three of our Christmas series, Christmas Vacation. Not going to lie, I had to look back because I forgot. Um, man, I can't believe it's Christmas already. Um, really excited to celebrate the birth of Jesus, as Jenny had mentioned. Um, I do want to make a note before I jump in to our text this morning that next Sunday we have two different options to worship with us, one in-house and one online. Our elder team is leading a Christmas prayer service uh, at 9 a.m., and there won't be any kids' ministry or any volunteers laid back, an opportunity to sing some Christmas carols, uh, hear a devotion from one of our elders, an opportunity to worship that way. Uh, we will also have at 10.30 a.m. a family online service that our staff team shot last week here uh, on campus. And so parents, we also have videos and content for your kiddos available for you today, or you can you know, wait to use it next Sunday on our website. Just go to our Christmas page uh, and you can find that there. So I want you to know next Sunday on the 26th, two options, in-house uh, Christmas prayer service led by our elder team at 9 a.m. and an online Christmas worship service for your family at 1030 uh, a.m. So we've been in some um, weird texts in this Christmas season. Uh, we've been in old, maybe unfamiliar Old Testament text, Micah. Last weekend, we talked about how every nativity scene needs a dragon, which was so awesome to see you guys go out and get dragons and tag me in your Facebook posts. Well done. You're theologically correct. Um, and today, we're going to go to a pretty familiar text for a lot of Jesus followers, and it's in the Gospel of John. Uh, John's gospel uh, cares that you know that Jesus is God. He uses, um, he records all these I am statements that Jesus makes about himself, as well as miracles. John wants you to know that Jesus is God. All these different gospel writers have a different bent, a different take, like a lot of journalists do on whatever they're writing about. Uh, John wants you to know that Jesus is the God who comes down from heaven. And so today I just want to talk very, very simple, simply, I hope, uh, what are the implications if the Christmas story is true? Uh, or is Christmas about all the warm and fuzzies that you get from the 87 Hallmark Christmas movies that you will be forced, hi, honey, I mean, enjoy to watch? Um, is Christmas just not trying to say bad words as you're traveling uh, through the holiday traffic? Um, what, what happens if Christmas is actually true? Uh, Larry King was asked a very poignant question about the implications of Christmas, and I want to read that interaction with you this morning. If, if you could select, this is a journalist talking to Larry King, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? Without hesitation, he replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And what would Mr. King, a skeptic, ask? I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. If the Christmas story were indeed true. Now notice what he says, church. The answer to that question would define history for me. And you know what? Larry King is right. Because if that story is true, if there is a God who became one of us to die the death that we should have died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death, if that story is true, it has massive implications for us beyond Christmas shopping or holiday traffic or Hallmark movies. It's a story that changes everything. It's not a story about hope. It is the story of hope. So let me share with you, if I could, three implications 
uh, of Christmas. And so I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible or a smartphone, you can go to your Bible app. We're in the Gospel of John, the first 14 verses this morning. The first implication of Christmas is this, that Christmas reveals the beginning of everything. I said last weekend that Christmas doesn't start in a manger, but it starts in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, when God tells us for the first time that a Messiah is going to come. And so when John begins his letter, he's not talking about the beginning of his letter. He's not talking about the beginning of when he was born. He's talking about the beginning of everything. John chapter 1, verse 1 reads this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is telling his audience that in the beginning, there's this character called the Word. He was not only uh, with God, but he was actually God. And so what, what, John is, what John is getting at here is if you're a kind of a philosophy, uh, a philosophy nerd, he's talking about ontology. He's talking about how the beginning of everything happened. Now, I grew up in the church, and I always loved this text. I mean, I've, I almost have John, the first 14 verses, memorized because uh, I hear it every Christmas. Um, but while it's powerful to know that in the beginning Jesus existed, notice what he doesn't say. Well, how can I do that, Ben? Well, let me, let me share that with you. What he doesn't say is in the beginning with Jesus and all of the other gods the Romans are worshiping. What he doesn't say is in the beginning with Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, gurus, self-help experts. No, what John is saying is in the beginning of creation, of all things, was the Word, and the Word is Jesus. John is telling us the beginning of creation with Jesus and nobody else. That's why we sing about, right, in the beginning was the word. He is the unmatchless name. Nobody can defeat Jesus. He's always existed. He goes on to say in verse 2 and 3, he, so the pronoun he is a reference to Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without Jesus, right, nothing was made that has been made. And so when John uses the phrase, all things were made, he's literally talking about how all things came into being. And without Jesus, none of this, you wouldn't be here, number one, but none of this existence that we're in, this reality called life, would even be viable for us. Jesus is not just a cute little baby in a manger that poops and pees and cries. He is the God of the universe. And, and, and the gospel writers make note of, of these godlike characteristics. Now, the first one is in the Old Testament, but he, here, here are just seven godlike characteristics of Jesus. He was prophesied, he performed miracles, he taught with authority, he had supernatural knowledge, he was sinless. He claimed to be one with the Father. Every other religious teacher in human history can say, I can teach you about my God, but I would never say I am God. And Jesus is the only religious historical teacher that says, no, if you've seen me, you've already seen God. Number six, he was one with God. Number seven, he accepted the worship of other people. Now, you've got to be pretty narcissistic or 
a lunatic to say that you're God, accept people's worship, knowing full well that it's all a scam, right? It's all a scam. But it wasn't. Jesus is the God of everything that's had its beginning since the beginning of the creation of the world. In other words, Jesus is the beginning of everything. John gives us two categories to look at Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the God that creates everything. And number two, Jesus is the God who brings everything into being. Jesus is the beginning of everything. He's not just a religious figurehead. He's not a, just a good, nice, moral teacher. He is the God of everything that you're experiencing right now in your life. Second implication of Christmas is this, that Christmas is a search for significance and meaning. Um, I, <laughs> this is so funny. Isn't it like us to never forget people that give us gifts that we don't like? No, just me? Great. Awesome. Hopefully you're awake if you're watching online. I remember um, we would, uh, growing up, we would go to my grandparents for Thanksgiving and all the cousins and aunts and uncles would exchange names so that a month later, right, so that a month later we could exchange those Christmas gifts. And in particular, this one, this one Christmas, um, we were exchanging gifts. We were, my brother and I, Nathan, we we're probably middle school age. And so it, it's at that point, like you default to money, right, parents, grandparents. And so um, back in the day, they had paper gift cards to the mall. And then you could go to like things like a record store and buy CDs. Remember those days? Um, depending on what age you are, probably not. And so it was typical that a cousin probably just said, well, I can bank nine, nine out of 10, 99% chance that I'm just going to get a gift card. And sure enough, this one Christmas, we all received gift cards except my brother. My brother opened his gift, and it was, a, it was like a rectangle. It's like, hmm, that's a pretty big envelope for a $20 gift card to the mall, and he opens it up, <clears throat> and it's a two-in-one checkers and chess set. Now, if you're into board games, you're probably like, that's a great gift. Don't talk about it. Yeah, but my brother wasn't. <laughs> he's, an, he, 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 he's super active. He's an athlete, basketball. He's always on the go. He's the life of the party. He hangs out the mall. He loved the mall so much that he got a job at the information booth right in the middle of the mall so that he could get paid to hang out with his friends. Right? I worked two shifts and I quit. I hated it. Right? There's too, too many people around. And he opened it up, and at first I wanted to laugh at him, but I saw that he had like he was kind of fighting tears back, and he was angry. And he's like, "I know my cousin. I won't name his name, but I know my cousin. Like he knows me. He knows that I don't like this stuff. And today, like 20 years later, we still joke about it." Like, why, why is it that we never forget givers of gifts that we don't like? And yet the opposite is true, isn't it? That probably in your lifetime, when you were a child, definitely in mine, and if not, probably definitely as a parent or a grandparent, uh, you purchased a gift for your child or your grandchild that they really, really wanted. I mean, they were even scheming of like ways to increase their morality to be good, right? Which is always a weird dynamic in light of the gospel, but they're trying to be good so they, so they can get this gift. Uh, Christmas comes or you or Santa, that you, you give them this gift and they're excited out of their mind. But a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, maybe if you're lucky, Easter, three, four months away from Christmas, 
uh, their buddy got the same gift, and they're at your house in the living room playing with the same gift, and, and your child's friend says, hey, I, like, who, do you remember who gave you that gift? And your child says the worst thing ever. No, I, I don't remember. I got so much stuff. I don't remember who got me this gift. I don't know if it was Santa or my parents or my cousin or my Uncle Eddie. It's at that moment I realized as a young dad that any big gift that my son wants, it's coming from me. All right? Forget Santa. I worked for that. I'm going to pay for that. And I'm going to remind my son, no, hey, Finn, I bought you that gift. Why is it that we never forget the people that buy us the stuff that we don't want? And we easily forget about the, the giver of the gifts that we really wanted. God is not a bad gift giver, is he? Actually, in Matthew, Jesus talks about like how our parents are wicked and, and they still know to get up, want to give us as uh, children good gifts. How much more would our heavenly father want us to receive good gifts? And yet at Christmas time, right, there's a search for meaning and for significance. And we've received the best, we've been given the best gift uh, the world could receive from a very gracious and merciful God. And yet how often do we forget the gift giver who, who gave us the greatest gift in the world? Maybe because we're searching for meaning and significance and, man, a million other things, Right? I think that's why John says in John 1, 14, the word became flesh. The creator became part of the creation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or if you like the message version, moved into the neighborhood. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Remember, John's giving us two categories to look at Jesus. He's both the creator who creates all things, and all things have purpose in him, and now he's telling us the creator becomes part of the creation. And we get to decide, is this a good gift or not? Which my controllingness is like, who cares? Like, make people love you. I don't know that that's love, right? I mean, notice how people can respond in verse 10 through 13. All the references, all the pronouns to he refer to Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Right? Like, can you imagine, like, your child not be recognized in the age of social media? Like, Jesus is the most beautiful artist creator of the world, and we did not even recognize the art or the artist behind the art, right? Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, the Israelites first, but his own did not receive him. Not only did they not believe him, they did not receive him. Yet to all who did not receive him, to those who believed uh, all, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus is man's search for meaning and significance. And John gives us 
this beautiful picture of a God who's always existed, where no other gods ever existed, who created the world. All meaning comes from Jesus. And then Jesus becomes one of us. He puts skin and bone on, and then we get to decide. We get to decide if that is a good gift, if that is love, if that is grace. Man, you talk about a God who leads with vulnerability. And then John tells us towards the end of this section of Scripture, the people that should have recognized him didn't even recognize him. And the people that should have totally missed him recognized who he was. See, Christmas isn't just <laughs> about family time, and I know you see that a lot. We've, we've basically switched the meaning of Christmas and all the holiday channels to be, to be about with family. That, that's good, depending on if you like your family, I guess. But Christmas is about recognizing that there's a God who created the world, all meaning and purpose comes in and through him, and because of his love for us, became one of us so that one day he might be crucified, die the death that we should have died, and walk away and out of an empty tomb. The third implication of Christmas is this, that Christmas serves our greatest need, that we might cherish its greatest gift. Many of you have probably heard of John 3.16. If you haven't, you've probably watched enough ESPN to see somebody hold a sign that says John 3.16. And in John 3.16 and following, he lays out this beautiful gift that he's given to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This, this is, this is because, <clears throat> this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness. So he's talking about the reality of our existence, whether we want to admit it or not, put on a smile or not, right? Instead of the light, because their deeds were evil, everyone who does evil hates the light. They have no desire to want to follow Jesus. We already know that from John chapter 1, verse 10, right? But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be plainly, uh, so that it might be seen plainly that what they say, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The implications of Christmas, church, is that it, it addresses our greatest need, that we are sinners desperately in need of grace. Notice the contrast that John gives us in John 3.16. You have God versus the world, love versus hate, life versus darkness, life versus death, truth versus wickedness, belief versus unbelief, and salvation versus condemnation. I want to read something to you, church, that I really want you to ponder this week. And it's this. Anyone surprised by the brokenness of life has too high a view of humanity too low of a view of their sin, and too narrow of a view of what goes on across the world on a daily basis. Let me read that again. Anyone surprised by the brokenness of life has too high of a view of humanity, 
too low of a view of their own sin, and too narrow of a view of what goes on across the world on a daily basis. Uh, it's easy for us to read John 3.16 and take away that the world is a great place, somewhat deserving of God's love. It's not. We're deserving of God's judgment and wrath, but yet out of his love, he sends his son. I mean, if anything, the daily news report should convince us otherwise. School shootings, drug abuse, poverty, genocide, civil war, and think about your own heart, how callous you are, how negative you are, the anger that you carry, the resentment that you carry. Look, church, we can try to make the world a safer place, a nicer place. We can talk about gun control. We can talk about mental illness. We can talk about violence uh, on TV. We can talk about parenting methods and prescribe different drugs. We can reach across the bureaucratic aisle and work on answers on people who think differently than us. But this Christmas story tells us this one simple truth. Until we identify that the fundamental problem is our sin we will not begin to see the solution, which is a personal relationship with Christ. You know, every religion must be able to do two things. Provide a reason for pain, for the pain of life, and offer a solution to fix it. And I might submit to you that only the Christian faith identifies the problem as something purely within us, our sin, and the solution is simply something entirely outside of us, the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. One famous author, G.K. Chesterton, I love this story, once read a newspaper column entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And so he decided to write in and give an answer. And here's his two-word response. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. The biggest problem with the world, church, is you and I and the sin that we bring to the table. But there's this Jesus who's the creator of the world. John tells us everything that he creates comes from him, right? This is why a, a simple tenet to the Christian faith that God creates the world out of nothing, because not only does he create the world out of nothing, one of the Greek words in the New Testament is exosia, which is our English word for exit, right? After this service, you're going to exosia, you're going to exit out of the building. Now, why do I tell you that? So you can sound smart, right, to the family that didn't come to church? No. Why I tell you that is that it's the same word, family, used of how Jesus creates the world. He creates it, exosia, out of nothing, and if Jesus is God, which he is, he never gave an opinion in his life. Because when you're God, you don't have opinions. You have authority. And out of what Jesus says is ultimate authority. And what does he do with it? He becomes one of us. He considers, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he considers others better than himself. And he becomes faithful. <laughs> like a servant, and dies the death that we should have died on the cross. John says it this way in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, Christmas is an opportunity to recognize that there is a God who's always existed 
And no other God has existed as long as Jesus has, who created everything and all purpose and meaning is created by him, for him, and through him. And not only that, he becomes one of us, dies the death that we should have died, and rises again three days later. And you and I have one, or two, one of two responses. We can respond the way the folks did in John 1, 10 through 11, where John says, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We can take the gift of the gospel that the Father sends us and goes, I don't, I don't think this is beautiful. I don't think this is actually meaningful. Or we could respond like the folks in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's our decision this Christmas. It's decision whether or not you've brought it up at work or at school or with a sports team or whatever you do on the weekends. It's a decision that all of us have to make, which is this. Who is Jesus? Well, I don't care who you think he is. Who does he claim to be in the Gospels? Because you got to know what you're going to walk away from, right? Or you have to know what you actually are, who you're actually following. And this is the heart's cry, church, of every Christmas, to have meaning, to have significance, to cherish the giver of the greatest gift, which is the gospel, that Jesus serves our greatest need so that we might always cherish our relationship with him. And we've got a few more days until we celebrate the birth of the Messiah on Christmas Eve. Is there is just one person or one family or one couple or one neighbor or one student that you go to school with, is there one person that you can invite this Christmas Eve that has yet to answer that question? Who is Jesus? That is still wrestling with, is Jesus somebody that might be a nice emotional religious crutch for some? Or is he actually the God that John actually describes about in his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14? I hope and pray that this week the Lord would put one person on your heart. It could be a family unit, it could be a person, it could be a neighbor, whomever it is. And I want to encourage you to invite them to Christmas Eve this Friday. And I can promise you one thing, one thing, though it is not my job to save your friends, they will hear a clear presentation of the gospel. I will set it up for you, okay? If we're playing volleyball, I will be your setter. I hope that's what they're called. I'll let you spike it. You follow them, follow up with them after our Christmas Eve services and have the conversation. What do you think about the service? Great. What do you think about Jesus? Who do you think he is to you? If Christmas is true, which it is, it has massive, massive implications that can, if we would have the courage just to have one conversation, it could change the trajectory of one person's life. That they, because of your willingness to have that conversation with them, it could begin their journey with the God of the universe, Jesus himself. Now let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the simplicity of your word. 
Thank you for the gospel of John, who um, is very clear, unlike, <laughs> unlike when he writes Revelation. Uh, thanks for this reminder that um, you're the only God that's really ever existed. You stand far superior than any other God, any other guru, any other spiritual teacher, any other self-help person that's ever lived. We, we admit and we confess to you, Jesus, that um, there's a lot vying for our attention. There's a lot of things that we can give meaning to. We can turn good things into ultimate things. And Jesus, I think if we're honest, it's easy. It's easy to forget the giver of the greatest gift that we've ever received. Would you remind us how we first fell in love with you. Would you call us back to the gentleness of what it felt like to receive your son for the very first time? And would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear for the people at our jobs and our neighborhoods and our schools that still have yet to answer the, the only, really the only question that matters in this life, which is who is Jesus? God, thanks so much for the greatest gift and the massive implications it could mean if we were willing to have one, just one conversation with someone. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.